Hey folks, hope you're having a good week so far. Today is part two of a two-part series on canoes. Uh, we're talking to an expert, Steve, uh, who Kurt interviewed back in 2015. So this is a pretty old episode, but based on the downloads, uh, y'all really liked it. So it, it was one of the most downloaded episodes we've ever had on the first day, which was cool to see. So hoping this one does as well too. Uh, but Steve is a great storyteller, very informative, a guide, uh, and is very passionate about canoeing and about the waters that we canoe in. So the second half of the conversation talks more about canoeing as well as Steve's passion for the boundary waters and saving them around Lake Superior from uh, from mining. So I know that we deal with that here where I'm from, uh, phosphate mining. And up there, I think it's like copper ore mining or something like that. So we're going to hear about that. But if you haven't, go ahead and check out part one. Hope you enjoy. Let's go ahead and jump in. Well, Steve, I grew up in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and Tahlequah is situated on the Illinois River, which is a scenic waterway in Oklahoma, and uh, there are a lot of canoe outfitters up and down the river that let people do short float trips. You know, usually it's a single day sort of a thing, a 12-mile or maybe a 20-mile trip where, you know, there's decent current. But in Oklahoma, the water's warm, the air's hot, and canoeing is just pretty much the same as swimming. You're, you're going to be in the water as much as you're in the canoe, and that's part of the fun. So when you're up north, when the seasons are, are colder, when uh, you've got those the, the cold water, because it's like you said, spring or late fall, and the water's getting pretty cold, we're not about swimming anymore. It's a little bit different sport. How do people need to dress for the conditions? Oh, that's a great question. Your spring and fall is different. For sure, in the summer, you can get away with short sandals and a T-shirt, and most people do, I think. But in the spring and fall, for one thing, you don't want to, it's much uh, more comfortable not to have wet feet. So slide at the bottom, um, you know, waterproof boots. Uh, you know, guides and uh, fishermen up here for years have just worn rubber boots, you know, knee-high rubber boots, and they Try not to go over the top, but if you do go over the top of a rubber boot, you got a boot full of water. So that's you know it doesn't dry out. So what we use are um, uh, neoprene um, uh, bottom and Gore-Tex top breathable socks uh, made by a company called Choda in uh, in Tennessee. They're fish. They're really a fly fishing company, but they make this beautiful outfit of boot and sock that's made for boundary waters tripping it's, it's, and uh, we've we uh, just really stand by them people we've gone on trips with we s sell them to them and they say gosh that was the best thing I best investment I ever made dry feet in cold water so they, he makes um, they make a sock that goes all the way basically all the way up to your hip it's like a hip boot so if you really want to go deep in the water in cold water you can but I wear the knee-high one. It's tight around the top. Even if you go over the top, it just a dribble goes down into your shoe, but not very much. The shoe itself is, uh, um, you know, leaks. It's got holes in it. It's a, it's a great boot that's very comfortable and gives you a lot of support, but it has drains so that, you know, your feet stay dry because they're in this neoprene sock with the Gore-Tex upper, and your, and your boot is draining water instead of just sloshing around in water. So that's what I recommend in spring and fall. In the, you know, from there up, um, waterproof, um, you know, sometimes you need waterproof 
pants, you need a rain pant over the top of your regular pants. You know, if it's if it's raining, obviously, you don't want to sit in a puddle in your on your canoe. Uh, so, but you know, most of the time we're just wearing breathable uh, pants that dry quickly, and the same thing for on the top. Uh, I like wool in cold weather. You know, wool wool tops. Um, so, so many great companies de these days using. Um, you know, uh, wool that doesn't get stinky, <laughs> you know, like smart wool and, and so many others. Everybody's got wool in their line, and that feels great on a cold day. And then layers, obviously, just like you in the mountains would use, you know, um, you need sometimes a, a, a puffballed kind of jacket or a, or a fleece jacket and a, and a rain top or a wind top on top of that. I, we make a a jacket ourselves it's just a wind top you know that's uh, zips up tight around your around your neck has a hood um, is uh, adjustable at the bottom it's a color you know it's a bright color so people can see it's bright red makes great photographs and it blocks the wind on a windy day it's not waterproof but it and it breathes well lots of options you know from any outdoor store in America pretty much can outfit somebody for a boundary waters canoe trip except for the cold weather boots and that's a specialty item so that's where I concentrate on cold weather is making sure people have dry feet we were out this past uh, two weeks ago in August and we had wet like October we had two days when it was windy 20 mile an hour continuous winds for 48 straight hours hmm. uh, we were on a campsite in Basswood Lake which is a big lake and we just stayed there and enjoyed it <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't try to go paddling because it's just too rough but we had uh, we had a wonderful time, and we had dry feet because we were wearing chotas. And you know, and if you had sandals, your feet would be cold the whole time. So you got to have you know you got to be prepared for almost any weather if you see it coming. Usually around here in July and August, you don't have to worry about cold weather. But this year, you know, once in a while it happens. And and uh, of, of the six of us, I think three of us had chota boots, and we were the ones that were happy. <laughs> the whole time and people who uh, had wet feet uh, just you know just aren't happy at 48 degrees and windy oh yeah well it's fun when you can push the season a little bit for one you get a longer canoeing season you know before the water ice is up but um i think it also means in some places i'm not sure about boundary waters but you get away from crowds a little bit more when you can extend the season and you also see things like changes in the foliage and, and animal behavior changes in the fall, too. So I think it would be delightful to be able to paddle more during the colder seasons. What about the risk of hypothermia? What if you do end up flipping? What kind of precautions should people take? Well, number one precaution is don't be out in the middle of the lake by yourself when it's really rough. You know, because um, it's, that's a tough situation. You know, sometimes you have to cross make a crossing in rough cold conditions and you just have to do it very carefully get your center of gravity as low as you can in the canoe the canoe is a super seaworthy vessel so as long as your center of gravity is low you're relaxed and you have your paddle in the water you know you have a brace the paddle is what uh, is that outrigger that gives you a brace to keep your canoe upright when you get hit from the side with a big wave so, you know, I think there's a tendency sometimes by people to pull their paddle out of the water and hold onto the gunnels. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's one, that's the one situation where if I'm in the stern, Curtis, and my bow paddler starts doing that, that's when I start yelling, get your paddle <laughs> in the water. 
that's the thing that keeps you upright. Keep paddling. Keep moving faster than the waves. But you know the the thing. The best thing to do is to be is to be safe. Don't go away from shore. Stay near shore in cold in cold conditions. We had one of these days getting to this campsite. The wind picked up suddenly out of the west. Two maybe foot and a half, two foot waves. They're pretty significant, really, in a canoe. We follow the shoreline to get to our campsite instead of taking the direct route, and that's the safe thing to do. It took 10 minutes longer, big deal, you know. And um, I don't want to be tipped over in the middle of a big lake. Cold water or warm water doesn't ma you know, it matters, but I don't want to be tipped over in the middle. Of I've never done it, but, you know, you know, knock on wood here, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't want it to happen, and I'm going to be cautious about where I go and how I do it. You know, and I think some people throw caution to the wind, so to speak, and, and that's how they get in trouble. There's been people who have tipped over in the middle of a basswood lake called Bailey Bay. It's a big lake. They've lost all their stuff, and they swam to shore. You know, wear your life vest, obviously. Uh, dress for conditions, but you know, um, and you're in a canoe trip. No, really, literally, nobody is wearing a dry suit like you might if you're a whitewater paddler in a kayak or even a sea kayaker. So, uh, and, and it's, if it's uh, mid-September to ice up, which is usually around the first of November, that those uh, months, those days. I just have to be much more cautious and stay near shore and don't risk anything because there's nobody around. You're right. You know, it's a, it's the best season to be out because there's nobody around, but there's also nobody around. There's no one there to hear you scream. <laughs> no, and it's a long swim. And I, you know, I challenge you to get back into a tipped over canoe and get the water out of it. It's just pretty hard to do. Not many people can do it. And unless you practice it a lot in warm water, you're unlikely to be able to do it. Yeah, you know, I uh, I did practice it with my my buddies growing up. We had a lot of fun. Like I said, when we went on these canoe trips, we were swimming and swamping each other as much as we were canoeing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we got to the point where two of us, even when we couldn't touch the bottom, we could drain a canoe and flip it, and then get on the canoe <laughs> from opposite sides at the same time. We learned the tricks to do that, but you have to learn it. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. So. And hard to do in cold water when you got your boots on and. You know, your rain gear, and it's just way different, and, and the oh, water yeah. and the waves are rough. You know, the reason you tip over is because it's bad conditions, and that's what makes it even harder to get back in. So he, this leads me to another question. Um, people would have the option of maybe using a dry bag. They could tie their gear to the boat, or they could leave the gear loose in the boat, and hopefully mm -hmm. it would float. Um, if your gear is tied to the boat and you do capsize, then it's going to be incredibly difficult to do anything about it. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I mean, heaven forbid we get into that situation, but what we do is, uh, we use packs that are comfortable to carry. They're called canoe packs. They're made by companies like Granite Gear and Frost River and Cook Custom Sewing. So they're, um, they're nylon packs, like backpacking packs, but much more, much looser and more rectangular and, or, or, you know, blockier because they fit in the canoe better that way. But we line them with six mil plastic bags. So w once you uh, put your gear into that six mil plastic bag, you roll it up tight and then cinch down the, um, you, you know, the cover of the pack, um, the flap, and cinch it down tight. That pack's not going to sink. I tell you what, that pack will float for for days. 
And so you, you don't need a dry bag. Dry bags are, I mean, my opinion anyway, this is my opinion, in the Boundary Waters and Quetico, there's never a need for a dry bag. You know, dry bags are wonderful for your camera maybe, if that's what you're worried about. But for your gear, you want to be comfortable on the portage, number one, and you want it to stay dry if you happen to fall into the water. And that'll be fine. It'll be absolutely dry if you have a 6 mil plastic bag inside of a canoe pack and it's rolled up tight, it'll never get wet inside. So um, that, that's number one. And I would never tie them into the boat. They float forever. So, you know, if you tie it into the boat and you're trying to get your canoe to, to shore after you've tipped over, it, it ain't going to move very well with a bunch of packs tied to it. So you just don't, you just don't do that. And, uh, you know, you worry, get the boat back upright, get, get, it, get back into the boat and go retrieve your packs. Um, but, you know, and this is so rare, you know, we, we, we don't want to uh, talk too long about capsizing because it rarely ever happens, but if it does, you want to be prepared for it. So, um, you know, that's, I think that's my advice is uh, just uh, pack everything up tight in good portaging pack, plastic liner, keep it dry, and don't tie it into the canoe. Hey, that's that's good advice. I would not have thought of that, but you know that sounds like a perfect solution for backpacking and in, in rain as well. <laughs> Keep the stuff dry on the inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, backpacking you have more options, and you can have you can throw a cover over your uh, internal frame pack and keep everything dry from the outside, so you don't necessarily need a big plastic bag inside. But um, you know, in the canoe. Uh, that's not feasible, really. You know, these packs are, are large. They're made, uh, you know, on canoe trips, you want a pack that's big enough to carry maybe for two people, two packs for the whole trip, uh, one food pack and one for everything else. And uh, and these are rectangular or even blocky, boxy-looking packs that fit side-by-side side in the canoe. You know, backpacking packs just don't work in canoes. They're, they just don't fit. You know, they go underneath the thwarts, can't get them out. You know, they might, might be nice. And if you have a, uh, you know, a beautiful internal frame pack that you love, bring it on a canoe trip if you want to. But, um, you know, you, you'd be much better off really with a canoe, a pack that's made for canoeing. And the Voyagers knew something about what they were doing years ago. This is 300 years ago, and they had packs that look like the same thing we're using today, only. Today we make them out of better materials, and we also use, you know, sophisticated suspension systems. <clears throat> but um, you know, the tump line is not a bad deal. You, you know what a tump line is, Curtis? <laughs> I do not. What is a tump line? <laughs> a tump line goes over your forehead. It's what the Voyagers, how the Voyagers carried all of their packs. They had no back straps. They uh. had a strap that went from the top of the pack over your forehead with a pad on it, a leather pad. And they carried everything with what are called tump lines. Now, tump lines are still available for, for uh, canoe packs. And, you know, I don't use them, but I know people who do, and they swear by them. And, um, you know, it gets the weight on top of your head, basically, and on your, you know, and nowadays you still have, you have shoulder straps and a tump line. So you vary between carrying this weight on your, on your head and your neck and also on your shoulders and, uh, and your hips. So it's not a bad thing, um, and it's uh, it's uh, you know old-fashioned alternative that still works really, really well. 
I have found that there are a lot of the old ways. They were pretty innovative, really. People solve problems. They didn't have the same technology and materials that we have, but they figured out ways to do things that just made sense. Yeah, isn't that true? You know, we, how many times do we have to reinvent the wheel? But, uh, <laughs> exactly. It, the wheel's getting better every time, at least when it comes to outdoor gear. Boy, I, you know, last last 35 years and I've been in business, uh, amazing technology has made things lighter and more comfortable. Like, take sleeping pads. <laughs> Remember what we used to sleep on back in the, I mean, back in the 80s and 70s? It wasn't much. <laughs> and if it rained, it would get soaked and turn into a sponge. Yeah, exactly. That's right. They had, they had open cell phone pads for a while. <laughs> That's right. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, we've talked about quite a bit of gear here. Um, if someone wants to get into the sport of canoeing, what would you recommend for cost-effective ways to gear up? Well, I mean, number one is uh, I would... I always recommend people rent the first time they go on a canoe trip and take a guide. Uh, that's what outfitters are for. That's what we do. We have all of the best gear that people can rent and try and learn from. And we have uh, experienced guides who can go with groups, whether it's two or four or, or seven. You know, the maximum group size in the Boundary Waters and Quetico is, is nine. So that's the max. You can't have more than that. Um, but if you have, uh, you know, a family of four and you, t and you hire a guide through an outfitter like us and you got, get all the gear, you know, it's, it's relatively inexpensive considering how, what the cost of the gear is. We, I think we added up one time with all of our gear and we maybe more than anybody, we use the best possible gear you can buy and it's the most expensive. We, we spare no expense. These are $200 paddles and $3,000 canoes and packs that are 250 bucks and we use Nemo uh, inflatable sleeping pads that are 100 and something dollars each. So I think we with with a group of 6 there's something like $20,000 worth of gear that goes out. So if you know if you want the best and you want to feel what it's like and learn from somebody who knows what they're doing, rent, don't buy the first time in a in a trip like the Boundary Waters. And, uh, and hire a guide. A guide is, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an ex extra expense. Split it over through a group of four or six. It's not so bad. And these people will teach you everything you need to know on a five-day trip that you never would have learned on your own. So, you know, everything from our guides are all naturalist guides. So, you know, and uh, they know the woods. They know the nature. Um, you know, there's some of these people know way more about the ecology than I do, and I've been here 40 years as an ecologist. So, you know, they're, they're experts at, at this Boundary Waters um, uh, ecosystem. So that, that's number one. Now, if you're going to buy the gear and you're going to start out, I mean, um, and you're going to do wilderness canoeing, uh, and you're going to do the kind of flat water wilderness canoeing that we do, I mean, number one is probably the you know, um, you gotta you gotta realize that you're probably gonna carry the canoe about as much as you're gonna paddle it. So, um, depending on the routes you pick in the in the Quetico or the Boundary Waters, you can portage a lot or you can portage a little, but you always have to portage. So, 
And if you're in great shape and you're 25 years old and you know and you don't care, you know, a 75 pound canoe is what we used back then, back when we were young and you know and energetic and and uh, you know not so not so smart probably. So you can get away with that. But if you're uh, uh, 63 years old like I am now, and I would, uh, I'm not going to go pick up another 75 pound Grumman. So. You know, start with a lightweight canoe, and you never have to reinvest. That's number one, and then uh, and then work through the gear from there, one one piece at a time, as you can afford it. Um, you know, packs maybe next, and sleeping pads, and making sure you have a good waterproof tent. You know, I mean, you see people in the summertime trying to get away with kind of old and you know, used up tents that leak, and you know, you can maybe survive through a, a rainy night in, in August or July, but. It's not a lot of fun to have, you know, you want to have something that's really good and light and waterproof. And that goes for every piece of gear in, the, in your, um, you know, in your outfit. You know, I think that's good advice, Steve. I know that um, I've been tempted to cheap out as I'm getting into a sport. But if you have that cheap, heavy, clunky kind of gear... Uh, then you can get miserable pretty easily and you lose interest in the sport because it's so hard. But boy, the modern gear that you can have for almost any sport allows mm-hmm. you to have so much more versatility and freedom and enjoy the sport so much more. So I'm, I'm with you. I think that's right. Rent, rent first so you can find out what the sport is like if you have great gear. And then mm-hmm. take the time to uh, plan out your gear and save your money and buy something that's going to last, Right. And invest mm-hmm. in it so that you can enjoy it that much more. Right. An outfitter, if you're going to rent, who uses the stuff, not just talks about it and rents it, but actually uses it. You can kind of, you know, um, you can kind of feel them out by asking them where their last trip was and when it was. And, and uh, you know, and if you see the person, you can you can kind of get a feel for how uh, how likely it is that they're paddlers and, or hikers or whatever the sport is, you know, talk to people who do it, not just talk about it. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the things we pride ourselves in. Um, we as owners and every one of the people who works here, um, we do it. We just don't talk about it. When you say we, let's say the name again, Paragus Northwoods. Um, your website is uh, paragus.com, is that right? Yes, it is. And also uh, boundarywaterscatalog.com. But you know, you can get to all of it through uh, paragus.com. And that's P-I-R-A-G-I-S. That's exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> well, I want to make sure that people know how to, to find you because you're giving us such great information. And I, I know there are going to be people out there going to say, man, I have got to get to Boundary Waters and check that out. I'm going to go to Paragus and get him, him let him set me up with a guide and a boat and, and the right paddle so I can see what this is all about. So, um, listeners... Take advantage of this. We love it when our listeners go to the people we interview and that community builds and grows. You know, our outfitting department is run by two young men who uh, do a tremendous job, Drew Brockett and Adam Mock. And they're the guys who get the permits and set up the outfitting gear and talk to you about routes. I'm happy to do that, too. But um, they're the guys that answer the phone most of the time when you talk about outfitting. And they've been around here for about 10 years each, a little bit longer for Drew, maybe 15 years, and they do trips. I mean, Adam goes every two, day, uh, you know, every two days he has off in a row, which is every week, 
he's out on a trip, and then at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season, both Drew and Adam do do trips. That's what they do. They do Boundary Waters canoe trips, and they love the Quetico and the Boundary Waters. Well, that's great. So Drew and Adam, those are your guys. <laughs> yeah. So last time you were on the show, which was uh, back in March, episode number two, we talked about this uh, sulfite ore mine, which is a copper nickel mine that, that a foreign company is trying to come onto U.S. soil and, and do this mine that's going to be in the watershed for Boundary Waters. Something about that just doesn't make any sense. What's going on with that, Steve? Well, a lot. Um, first of all, it's not, it's not a mine yet, and if we have anything to say about it, it never will be. And we, we're making progress in that way. Um, our, our piece of the headwaters of the Rainy River Basin, and we're at the very headwaters of that large basin that eventually drains into Hudson Bay, uh, is, is just outside of the Boundary Waters. And the Boundary Waters itself is part of that headwaters. But uh, there happens to be along the edge of the Boundary Waters, um, a geologic formation called the Duluth-Gabro complex, which within it holds uh, layers of concentrated uh, minerals that contain copper, nickel, platinum, palladium, and gold. So people have been interested in these minerals for 50 or more years. The price of the minerals rose in the 1990s and early 2000s, so that mining companies became more interested in these concentrations of, of copper and nickel, especially just outside the boundary waters. Uh, they've been, uh, there's one company that we're concerned about right now called Twin Metals. They happen to be owned by Ana Fogasta, which is a Chilean uh, mining company, very large Chilean mining company. They want to build a mine here, and they've been exploring for a long time. So our concern is that that mine would drain, the water coming from that mine would drain directly into the Boundary Waters watershed through the heart of the Boundary Waters and what really is the heart blood of the Boundary Waters called the Kawishui River. American River is called the Kawishui River, one of the most threatened rivers in America last year because of this potential mine um, on the north side of the Laurentian Divide. Uh, two other companies are also interested, not as far along as Anafagasta is with their Twin Metals mine. So uh, our group, which started as uh, uh, six, uh, four, three, four couples and uh, local people like us, part of the group that founded this uh, campaign called the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters, um, uh, savetheboundarywaters.org. Um, we have over 20 national uh, environmental organizations and sportsmen's organizations who have joined this national campaign. We have, we have grown from the last time I talked to you to a budget of over a million dollars a year to fight this mine. We have uh, 10 full-time employees. We uh, have people all over the country working on including a pro bono law firm in Washington, D.C. It's a big, big job and it's a very a uh, precise and focused effort to keep out copper nickel mining from the Boundary Waters watershed. So uh, the effort is directed at the agencies, the Bureau of Land Management that owns the underground rights. They own the mineral rights underneath the land, the Forest Service that owns the land on top. Um, and the administration, um, the Obama administration, which controls those agencies. 
And our efforts are to try to convince those people that, first of all, they shouldn't renew mineral leases to um, Anafagasta. They should um, delay or rescind the, the uh, legal right to um, even explore for minerals in this watershed. And the Bureau of Land Management is considering how they're going to approach that subject right now. Those leases are up for renewal for another 10-year period. We say you shouldn't do that because you should do an environmental impact statement first to see what the impact will be to the Boundary Waters. Boundary Waters is a million acres. It's a thousand lakes. It's interconnected waterways. It's a giant sponge of water with land in between. If you look at the map of the Boundary Waters, there's almost more water than there is land. But uh, and anything, any pollution that would come into the wilderness from a potential source like a copper nickel mine would spread through the whole wilderness and destroy the ecology of those lakes. So and it would destroy our business and everything about um, about our business that um, we that we've spent so many years working on. So we're we're fighting it as fighting it as hard as we can, and there's a a large group of people here in, in this area and across the country who are as, as concerned as we are. And so it's a campaign to save the Boundary Waters. Uh, if you want to, listeners want to check it out, it's Boundary Waters, uh, savethebounderywaters.org. Um, right now we're working on, we've had several different um, uh, events over the last couple of years to try to publicize what we're doing. We had a bike tour of Minnesota towing a canoe behind us on a trailer across 800 miles of Minnesota, introducing the subject to Minnesotans. Uh, coming up, starting on September 23rd, two uh, wonderful young explorers, a couple, um, Dave and Amy Freeman, will be taking off in their canoe for a year in the Boundary Waters. It's called Year, it's the, the event is called Year in the Boundary Waters. Um, this is not new to people like Dave and Amy. They've spent um, many, many months crossing Canada by canoe and kayak and dog sled. Now they're going to spend 365 days in the Boundary Waters Wilderness, moving by canoe in the fall, dog sled in the, in the winter, and back to canoe all next spring and summer. They'll be there for a whole year, and they'll be sending out uh, tweets and social media every day from, uh, from wherever they are in the Boundary Waters. Um, and we've got a sportsman's organization that's as, as concerned as the paddlers are because this is a big fishing area, and it's and uh, fishermen and hunters uh, enjoy the forest as much as paddlers do, and uh, you know especially this time of the year as we get into hunting season. But uh, fishing year-round in the Boundary Waters is very important. So, so that's what uh, you know. And the, the whole reason to do this is that copper nickel mines, sulfide ore mines, as they're known, hard rock mining, and we've been reminded of this many times recently, is is uh, toxic. You know, it gets, uh, it's almost impossible to have a sulfide ore mine and not have pollution. In fact, I think it is impossible. It may take a few years, but pollution from mining is the number one most toxic industry in America. And here we have the Boundary Waters Wilderness, the America's most popular wilderness. 250,000 people a year come to the Boundary Waters in some form or other, day trips, um, hundred and uh, I believe 100 and, no, 79,000 wilderness uh, paddlers every summer. Uh, so there's no wilderness that's more popular in, in the United States. It's a million acres. It's the largest wilderness east of the Rockies, 
and north of the Everglades. It was founded in 1964 with the original boundary, with the original Wilderness Act. It was one of ten wilderness areas in that first Wilderness Act. Hubert Humphrey, who helped write that act, was a Minnesota senator who founded, who wanted to make sure that the Boundary Waters was part of that act. And uh, it just doesn't make any sense to put the world's most toxic industry next to what is really the world's most popular wilderness area. Mm. You know, Steve, I am... I am sure our listeners are aware of the the big spill that happened here in Colorado um, upstream of Durango on the Animas River. And I don't know the details about this mine other than to say that there was a mine there that had flooded and started retaining a lot of water that got just really polluted with a lot of heavy metals and things like that. And uh, the dam that was holding it was breached and the river was flooded and... People with well water along the valley were told they couldn't even take a shower. And uh, the, the fish in the river, of course, suffered. The, the full eco- ecological impact of this is still unknown. But millions of gallons of these nasty, um, heavy metal-laden waters just gushed down the Animas River Valley. And it was, it was a prized trout stream before. It was a, a place of natural beauty almost beyond compare. And now it's just been assaulted in this horrific way, we've got to be able to be responsible as citizens of the planet, right? We've got to be responsible for how we use its resources. And there are some places that are just national treasures. They should never be threatened by such a thing as what you're describing. Yes. Thank you for making that point. You know, the Animus River disaster is only one of many. Um, A year ago, August 4th, 2014, there was a breach in a tailings basin uh, in uh, British Columbia that sent millions of gallons of tainted water down one of the uh, British Columbia's most uh, prized fishing rivers and uh, at the, what's called the po- Mount Polly Mine. It was, was supposed to be an example of what can be, how mining uh, for sulfide ore can be done right. And here it is destroying one of um, the beautiful, pristine fishing streams of British Columbia and a, and a salmon hatchery at the end. So, you know, these things happen on a regular basis. It happened in Mexico in uh, September last year. Things that we don't hear about around the world are, are disastrous. You know, mining of this type really should be done in desert areas where it has been done, places where there's not a water resource um, that can be polluted so easily. Uh, you know, uh, the, the pebble mine in Alaska is another example, the, one of the worst places to talk about sulfide ore mining, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and the headwaters of, uh, of Bristol Bay in Alaska, two of the absolute worst places on this beautiful globe where you could consider that kind of toxic industry. Unfortunately, those minerals exist in these places, and the best thing to do with them is to leave them in the earth where they're safe and not exposed to oxygen and water where they're 2,700 feet down in the earth where they've been for 1.8 billion years and they can stay there safely. And, uh, you know, people talk about new, about mining as a, a, uh, having new technology. Well, there's no technology new about mining that doesn't involve moving tons and tons, millions of tons of rock. 
you know, there's no way to take a laser and extract these minerals. You dig in the ground and you pull out rock and you bring it to the surface and you expose it to the atmosphere and you produce acid mine drainage that goes into the watershed around it with the heavy metals as you experienced on the Animus River. We don't want that to happen to the Boundary Waters. We'd be out of business. From a business standpoint, it's horrible. But as an ecologist and a, and a um, person who loves the wilderness as it is, we need to keep this place pristine. Water that you can drink out of your cup as you paddle through these lakes, which you literally can do and what we do all the time, dip a water bottle into the lake and drink it. Wow. So few places like that left in the world, Curtis, and we appreciate it the way it is. Even though we've been here for 40 years, we still appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Well, thank you for the efforts that you're making there to preserve this national treasure. The Boundary Waters is something that just shouldn't be threatened like that. So, listeners, it's uh, savetheboundarywaters.org if you would like to learn more information and get involved. And, Steve, I know that some people, like I mentioned before, are going to want to uh, try out a trip on the Boundary Waters. Do you offer any discounts or promotions for our listeners to make that a little easier? We would, you know, Curtis, we would love to. We'd love to hear from more of your visitors and have them called Drew or Bert up here at, on our 800 number, if you don't mind my announcing it. <laughs> Not good for it. Unsolicited testimonial from uh, <laughs> from people up here that uh, you, if you want to you hear more about what we do, certainly you can call uh, us and, and uh, you can get, I think what we're offering for a first time, Outfitting trip to get people up here to enjoy it is a 10% discount on our full outfitting package, which means everything, soup to nuts. You bring, you can, you know, you can bring your own sleeping bags if you have them and you want to, but we'll supply everything. You can come here with a, with your suit on and uh, and tie, and we'll have you into the Boundary Waters in a couple hours with the best gear that you can possibly find anywhere in the world, and uh, and we'll give you a, um, you know the. A special discount that is available only to your listeners if you just tell us that that's where you got it from. So if the listeners call in and say, hey, I heard about this on the Adventure Sports Podcast, then they get the discount. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you offering to let that make, let us make that available. Oh, that's awesome. I have to mention, um, the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to us by 180TAC, which is my company, along with Travis Parsons, my co-host. And 180TAC is the manufacturer and seller of outdoors products. And we make the 180 stove and the 180 flame, which are natural fuel backpacking stoves. And Steve sells those stoves at Paragus Northwoods. So if you are interested in the 180 stove or the 180 flame or our Bearline Plus, Bearline Utility System, Steve has all those products and you can get them from him. Thank you so much for saying that, Chris. You know, Natural fuel stoves make a lot of sense here because <laughs> if you've been on a Boundary Waters campsite, you realize that there's more uh, fuel sitting around within arm's reach uh, than you could possibly need to make, you know, to cook breakfast or, or dinner. It's just, it's just chips of, uh, you know, white pine and jack pine and pieces of wood that people have left because they're scrap pieces of wood and you can burn them in a stove like yours and... You never have to go out and start chopping wood in the in the woods or start searching the shorelines for wood. So, really, a f- super efficient way way to use uh, all the you know the natural environment to uh, save having to carry you know a big bottle of gas. Well, the other thing about it is, especially the 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 white gas stoves 
leaky O-rings, spills, people that have tried to, to fill up a stove, never fails, it overflows, you overfill it, the funnel falls out, or maybe you don't even have a funnel. That, that kind of toxic white gas does not belong in the boundary waters, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. So you know, We've got a lot of natural fuel just sitting there ready to use, and you know, unless there's a fire ban, yeah, I, that's the only way um, my wife and I cook, and uh, you know, it just makes so much sense and saves weight. Weight's in, in critical, and the weight, you know, the fuel is there ready to be used. You just need to gather it up a little bit, and with a stove like yours, you can do that almost without moving, just sitting in the middle of the campsite. It's all right around you. Yep, that's the way I do it. <laughs> well, Steve, thank you very much for your time today. It's been very enjoyable learning more about canoeing, and I learned a ton, and, and like I've said, I, I grew up on a canoeing river, and I have done a lot of canoeing, but you have taught me an awful lot about canoeing and also about Boundary Waters. And so thank you for your time. Well, I sure appreciate you calling. And, and you know, we got to get you out here sometime, Curtis, with your family. And as this, is a, this is about as family-friendly as any wilderness area in the world. Well, we'd love to do it. My son almost made it there this fall, but didn't work out. He was going to be in the Boundary Waters this fall, and I was excited to hear from him the report. But we'll have to get the whole family out there. Let's do it. Thank you so much. Uh, you bet. You take care. And for all of our listeners, thank you very much for your time today. And until the next episode, do get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>